Hello and welcome back to There Will Be Spoilers, 100 Films, 100 Podcasts. My name is Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And Ethan, we're returned in the new year. First full week, I suppose, of the new year. We are back. And we're back with number 40 on the list, which is episode 61 for us, 1965's The Sound of Music. The Sound of Music. Ethan, have you ever seen this film before? Uh, yes. Who has not? Myself. You are sick, and you should be in prison. I was put in prison. Were you put in prison for being an uh, anti-Nazi sympathizer? Yes, an anti-Nazi sympathizer, which I'm not actually sure. I haven't gone through the logical chain there, but I can't determine if that means I'm in favor of the Nazis or against them. Anti-Nazis, I think. How did you get through your childhood without some teacher in school playing this movie for you? I really don't know. Isn't um, our past experience idiosyncratic? Yeah, I guess so. I just don't. This is this is always on TV. It's always play, being played in schools. I don't know how you missed it. Uh, now I hadn't actually sat and paid attention to the damn thing. I've just probably seen it in stops and starts about five hundred times. Ultimately, culminating in a viewing of the film. Had I sat and paid close attention while watching it? No. Could I sing every song in the thing? Probably yes. You know, that's the thing. And, you know, again, part of the reason we've done this podcast is because I feel like I knew most of these songs and a lot of the plot to this film without having seen any of it. There you go. I also heard a rumor that rumor. the British War Department has this film prepared for nuclear apocalypse. They just play this in the bunkers to keep up morale. Really? Yeah, and then someone asked them about that, and they're like, well, that's a matter of state security, so we can't answer that. So they totally have it. Which does seem sort of, you know, confirmation. Yeah. That, I, wow. I mean, I guess that's not a bad idea. So this um, film was also very popular in South Korea when it came out. Really? They showed it four or five times a day, which apparently is uncommon for them. And they even looked to ways to shorten it because people loved it so much to get more people in the theater. So they cut all the songs out. <laughs> what? It seems crazy. But a lot of the people. The songs love are the whole point. Film. One would think so in a musical like this. <laughs> wow. But before we dig any deeper, Ethan, maybe we should get a plot synopsis. Oh, let's. So The Sound of Music is the story of Maria. She is a free-spirited young woman studying to be a nun who is assigned to work as a governess for Captain Von Trapp, a widower with seven children in 1930s Austria. That was a lot of information. Take it in. When she arrives at his mansion, she finds that the children are rebellious and mischievous, but they respond well to her kindness and compassion. Captain Von Trapp is, at first, exasperated with Maria's apparently undisciplined style. He then leaves for Vienna to visit his girlfriend, and Maria teaches the children to sing. When the captain returns with his girlfriend, the Baroness, and their mutual friend, Max, he sees what appears to be chaos with his children, and when Maria stands up to him and implores him to spend more time with them, he orders her sent back to the Abbey. However... His heart is warmed by the children's singing, and he apologizes and asks Maria to stay. Max attempts to convince the captain to enter the children in the Salzburg Festival, but the captain refuses, though he does allow a lavish party to be thrown at his mansion. The children watch the adults waltz, and they try to dance themselves. Maria helps them, and the captain then comes outside and dances with her, and the two realize that they have 
feelings for each other. The Baroness recognizes this and privately suggests to Maria that she return to the Abbey, which she does secretly. At the Abbey, the Mother Abbess convinces Maria to return and find her life, which she does. Upon her return, she finds that the Captain and the Baroness are engaged, but he breaks the engagement and asks Maria to marry him instead. While the two are on their honeymoon, Austria is annexed by the Third Reich, and Max enters the children in the festival uh, anyway, without the captain's permission. When the captain and Maria return, they discover that he has been summoned to work in the German Navy, which he refuses to do, but he also knows that refusal will mean death for him and his family. So they intend to sneak away and leave for Switzerland that evening, but they are discovered and instead perform at the festival. They sneak away to the Abbey after their performance and are followed by Nazis. The oldest daughter, Liesel, discovers that her crush, Rolf, who delivered telegrams to their house all the time, has joined the Hitler Youth, and he gives the family away, but not before they can escape with the help of the Abbey's car, which they use to drive into the mountains and then cross the border into Switzerland on foot. And that is the movie. For as long as this film is, I think this is a relatively short plot synopsis. Yes. And that's because a lot of singing happens in the film. A lot of singing. And that's... I would say one of its strengths. I think everyone would agree. There are so many songs here that people know so well. The 16 are, going on 17 is there a good are, one. It is a good one. There are a few songs in there I could have done without. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think most of the songs before what I take to be our pivotal scene kind of fall into that category. So maybe I should tell you where pivotal scene is and go for Blast there. it. Blast it out. I think about 30 minutes into the film where Maria meets the kids and the kids are, you know, showing themselves to be interesting characters, right? You got Liesel's, you know, young love situation. All the kids are kind of troublemakers, but they all want attention from their father. And it's her back and forth with those kids that I think really endears me to this film. Before this, we have had like five songs that are not memorable. And I was like, oh boy, this is going to be a slog. <laughs> I should also say that I looked at the runtime on the Amazon version that I got. Didn't know there was like a full documentary attached to the back of it. Oh, no. And so it looks like it's a four-hour film. And I'm like, oh, oh boy, no. going to settle in for a long one here. Might have to watch this in two or three parts. But then I was like, I don't know. Sometimes they add stuff to the end. Let me just look up. And so it turned out to only be, you know, two hours and about 50 minutes. Yeah, it's not that. I mean, it's long, but it's not that long. It's not that long. We've certainly seen longer on this list. I'm thinking, of course, sure. it's been her. And I enjoyed it. So it wasn't until this 30-minute mark, though, that I actually was bought in. So let's play that scene for you guys, and we'll be right back. At ease. Well, now that there's just us, would you please tell me all your names again and how old you are? I'm Liesel. I'm 16 years old, and I don't need a governess. Well, I'm glad you told me, Liesel. We'll just be good friends. I'm Friedrich. I'm 14. I'm impossible. <laughs> really? Who told you that, Friedrich? Fräulein Josephine. Four governesses ago. I'm Brigitta. You um, didn't tell me how old you are, Louisa. I'm Brigitta. She's Louisa. She's 13 years old, and you're smart. I'm 10. 
And I think your dress is the ugliest one I ever saw. Brigitte, you shouldn't say that. Why not? Don't you think it's ugly? Of course. But Fräulein Hilda's was ugliest. I'm Kurt. I'm 11. I'm incorrigible. Congratulations. What? Incorrigible? I think it means you want to be treated like a boy. Mm -hmm. I'm Marta, and I'm going to be seven on Tuesday. And I'd like a pink parasol. Well, pink's my favorite color, too. Yes, you're Gretel. And you're five years old? My, you're practically a lady. <laughs> now I have to tell you a secret. I've never been a governess before. You mean you don't know anything about being a governess? Nothing. I'll need lots of advice. Well, the best way to start is to be sure to tell Father to mind his own business. You must never come to dinner on time. Uh, never eat your soup quietly. <laughs> and during dessert, always blow your nose. Uh, Don't you believe a word they say, Fräulein Maria. Oh, why not? Because I like you. <laughs> so the reason I find this scene to be really endearing and what got me on board with the film is that I said, okay, now we've got our characters here. Maria by herself is fun, but she needs to play off those kids and to have that back and forth banter with, you know, the ensemble cast of children, the seven children. Yes. And a little bit before this, I didn't include this audio because it was getting a little bit too long. She has this fun little witty back and forth with the captain. And you can tell he's like exasperated by her, but also maybe a little interested. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. I think might characterize the actual filming of this movie, how Christopher Plummer was really unhappy mm -hmm. filming this and was eating a lot and drinking a lot and even oh, really? to being drunk in a few of the scenes. Like the what? Um, competition scene where they sing at the end. He's drunk during that, evidently. No way, really? Yeah, and he called Julie Andrews Miss Disney the entire time. Oh, shit. And he said it was like being hit over the head every day with a Valentine's Day card working with her. Oh, wow. He later recanted and said, like, you know, I was really immature then, and she's actually a consummate professional, and they're apparently very good friends now. Right. I mean, Julie Andrews really does hold this whole thing together. I think if you get rid of her, it's not that great of a film. But she also really, I think you're right, she really benefits from the ensemble cast, from having a lot of different people to bounce against, especially the children, and well, and the, and the dad. I mean, she really needs those people to to because to bounce back and forth against because you're right the very first few scenes aren't that compelling no until the until the actual film gets going it feels like pretty standard um rogers and hammerstein fair which is to say i don't know how familiar you are with some of rogers and hammerstein's stuff uh but i, I would call this one of their standouts one of their very very best uh things uh, you know let me tell you rogers and hammerstein cinderella <laughs> stinker uh they've got a, i guess the king and i is okay but uh if i remember correctly it's pretty racist you know this this one does have compelling music and an interesting story and we mentioned about how andrews is holding this film together well she's kind of doing that behind the screen as well yeah. she would sing supercalifragilisticexpialidocious to the children mm. and because she just did mary poppins she just filmed mary poppins it hadn't been released yet though so apparently the kids actually thought that she had made that song up for them oh my god 
which is actually kind of incredible. But apparently she was just a ray of sunshine in this film on screen and off, which is really good to hear because I really like her in this and I thought she was fantastic. And yes. Christopher Plummer's performance, I never quite warmed up to him. And to, uh, to hear that, he really never quite warmed up to the film itself also makes a lot of sense. Well, because he's kind of an antagonist throughout a lot of the film. And so it becomes kind of tricky as to see, like, like he's basically the villain of the film until the Nazis really ramp up because there seems to be this really anti, um, authority, authoritarianism in here. Mm-hmm. Is it authoritarianism? There, yeah. Yeah. And so, or is it authoritative? It's well, anti-authoritarianism. I mean, yeah, they don't that's, want that's what I'm his yes. authority. So I think this is really interesting because at first I read him and they kind of make this explicit in the film that the reason he's forbidden them all of these things that children should have is that when he lost his wife, all that stuff reminded her, reminded him of, of her, her too much. And so this is kind of this like a, a little bit of a trauma narrative here. But once he hears the music back in the house, he realizes what he's lost and is willing to bend again and, and relax in the discipline. He doesn't have to take cover in his military disciplinarian style right. to continue living. And he talks about how the Baroness has given him purpose again. And he talks in that same scene about he's really active because activity indicates a life filled with purpose. So mm-hmm. he's very aimless. And so it's actually... Maria, Julie Andrews' character, that gives him that purpose, mixed, of course, with the achievement or the pride, the love he has for his children. Yeah. And how much they remind him of his own wife. But then he still got the arbitrary rule about they can't sing in public, and that doesn't make any sense. And so that he is sort of the antagonist throughout. And there are some times that I, I kind of commiserate with him because you can kind of see the pain he was in. But yeah. other times you're just like, this is just plot, right? The fact that they can't sing in public doesn't really seem to be grounded in anything. Right, and then they do sing anyway, so it that, that plot doesn't really go anywhere except for to further undermine him. But by that point, we're supposed to think of him as as a, I guess, a protagonist. It It, it is kind of, when, when you really sort of break that down, it is confusing as to what the message here is. Because if it's a full anti-authoritarian argument or bent then then who is the bad guy then he's also kind of the bad guy so that just kind of confused me as to where the film is really going yeah and i think for me what it comes down to is it's this nazi plot again so i think of this film and we'll get to this again in our three questions but i think it's important for my thesis we talk about cabaret though this is seven years before cabaret it is also a musically inclined film in mm-hmm. which the nazi party is rising throughout but we have very different results in this where cabaret we let the nazi party slowly encroach and take over the sound of music is actively fighting against that we see the nazis in the peripheral throughout the entire film rolf indicates very early on that there are people who are Austrians who ought to be Germans or there are Austrians who think that Austrians should be Germans and your father's going to get in trouble if he doesn't deal with that. At one point, he delivers a telegram, does a Zeke Heil, and we have mm. a, who I guess is like what the mayor of the town or something. Yeah. It becomes a 
ranking official in the Nazi party. Then you start, you know, after like the turning point of the film, which is their marriage, you think everything's fine. Boom, swastikas draped yeah. across Salzburg. And that's when things get, okay, Nazism is here. Rolf becomes part of the Hitler youth. He becomes right. a real villain at the end of the film. When he disappeared a little bit earlier, I think an astute viewer knows like, okay, things are going poorly. Mm-hmm. And it's not until we're directly confronted with it that we see where this diverges from Cabaret, right? They're mm-hmm. not going to take over in quiet. Their resistance, though it's fleeing, is still a resistance. Yeah, yeah, there there does seem to be. I mean, and I think Julie Andrews' character focuses, I mean, she's the locus of of resistance to authoritarianism. She's the one, she's, she's a, a sort of strange stand-in. B- before we get the Nazis, you know, to the father, she's the one who says, no, we're, the children need to have fun. They need to go outside. They need to do child things. They need to sing. I'm going to have a good time. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to whistle at people like they're animals. Uh, you know, so she seems to be the locus of resistance, even though, Perhaps the captain takes that on when they return from their honeymoon uh, to an extent. I don't think that that you would have the same result without Julie Andrews' character. Yeah, and I think what's even more telling about this is that his resistance is just nationalism, right? right? He's flying the Austrian flag because he's a proud Austrian and he's been, what is it, identified or he's been awarded by the emperor right like he's a good austrian yeah and so his dislike of the reich has nothing to do with the moral grounds that people have the benefit of in retrospect today right yeah so i think that's one of the issues with the film for me is that we're using the 1965 lens to feel really good about our characters tearing up nazi flags when in what this would be like 38 somewhere before the invasion Mm -hmm. of poland annexation of Austria is a, a date I'm sure I should know, but I'm not sure how much people knew about the deplorability of the Third Reich at that time. Yeah, I I think that there is a little bit of rose-colored glasses because this I guess at the end of the day at the end of the day this film is very much about just resistance in general, right? To you know it it, it pushes us to resist and ask questions to an extent. Maybe maybe that's giving it too much credit. Um, but yeah, and so the reasons for resistance aren't always necessarily great, right? We see Julie Andrews as a nun at the beginning who's sort of resisting the uh, being sort of trapped as a nun, at, but she only resists it because she just likes to be outside, not because she's against anything that the the church has done. It's just she just it's just not for her, right? Uh, <laughs> In the same way that the captain resists Nazism, not because of the bad things they do, but because he's a proud Austrian, right? So, yeah, this film makes us feel good about resisting and fighting the good fight. But the characters don't necessarily always fight the good fight. They just fight their own fight. Yeah, and they couldn't do otherwise, right? They're just fighting the fight they know to fight. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which sort of muddles the good feelings for this film. Uh, right. And I think maybe we could be um, condemned for overthinking this because it is a musical and those plots typically aren't the most well fleshed, but right. um, screw those people. We're going to do three questions or we're going to get into the nitty gritty <laughs> of these things. Well, then let's do it. So Ethan, our first question 
What do we owe to this film? I mean, it seems to me that this sort of level of extravagance for a sort of Technicolor musical, we got we owe a little bit like that that big sweeping shots of the Alps and Julie Andrews spinning around and these huge motion shots where you see you know the set. This isn't always. I mean, there certainly are sound stages, but there are so many of these like big long outside set pieces where we follow you know the camera tracks in front of julie andrews as she's stomping around and spinning around and um that i don't know that we've necessarily seen anything in any films on this list earlier than than this right and they're on location right they're in salzburg yes so that's a big deal yeah and i so i think we have to owe some of that extravagance in in this sort of the uh what's the word you just said on on not on set on location these sort of big on location set pieces that are done with you know these sweeping helicopter shots and uh you know these long tracking crane or dolly shots uh, those i i think that those have sort of defined this film and are widely reused i think you actually can see something of lord of the rings in this Yes. With the massive production, the long shooting schedule, being yes. on location and doing all these things, juggling all these balls at the same time, I think we see that extravagance, like you mentioned, in the production aspect of it, right? In the filming of it. Yeah. And I think that's become very popular in American cinema, cinema today. Yeah. I mean, now you get examples where something like Aquaman is almost entirely green screen, right? Mm-hmm. But you still do see these large, sprawling shoots. We'll see how the CGI thing goes, but I know I sort of don't think it's going to stick around for a long time. I guess we'll see. I mean, I also think that there is something about the the sort of saccharine nature of this of this film that continues to help set the tone for musicals, which is often why I don't much care for musicals, if, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Like nothing. I mean, this is a film about Nazis, basically, and nothing really bad happens to anybody in this film. You know, Captain Von Trapp gets a gun at the end of the film and nothing comes of that. Right. The two nuns take out some car starting things. Who knows what cars do? And (laughs) and that's really how the film ends. I thought there's going to be a shootout at the end. But that's just, again, my modern film watching sensibility, I suppose. Yeah, well, and if you think about it too, like realistically, if these are Nazis, those nuns are dead. Max is dead. You know, uh, well, probably quite a few of the people the Von Traps know are are dead because of this. You know what I mean? Like it, it just doesn't. It seems a little, uh, you know, punches were pulled. Yeah, and I think that that is also maybe part of of what we can continue to owe to this film which is interesting because west side stories before this and people die in that film true true yeah well but it's the, i don't know i don't know it's hard to say <laughs> we don't know what the fuck we're talking about certainly a really nostalgic rose-colored film yeah and i think it's it's achieving its purpose in that right that's but why I mean- it's you know allegedly the nuclear fallout film that's why it did so well in south korea at the time these are all things that people wanted to take refuge in yes and i think this film also does set the stage for a lot of the films that come right after it i mean think about bonnie and clyde bonnie and clyde is the opposite of this film in like every way 
uh, and these are only a few years apart, you know? So I think there is a strain that's like, please, let's hold on to the 50s. Let's hold on to the, you know, the post-war dream, uh, you know, of the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, you know, nuclear family. And at the same time, you've got people being like, we need to shatter this. This is a joke. So I don't think it's a coincidence that this list has so many depictions of Nazis in it. Yeah. Yeah. Because so. you've got Indiana Jones, you've got Cabaret, as I mentioned earlier, you've got this film. So we've got Sophie's Choice. Sophie's Choice. The list is replete with Nazis because it is this pinnacle of the American ideology. Yeah. And people use that for nostalgic purposes. Yeah. Or they try to deconstruct it. And I think you're right that this is hovering on that border where we talked about in the last few episodes specifically, where it tips. Mm-hmm. I think so. So, Ethan, do we care about this film? I mean, I think we kind of have to. It's... it. I mean, they play my favorite things at Christmas. It's not a Christmas song. It has almost nothing to do at all with Christmas except for that there are presents in it. Uh, and it's something that gets played every year. Um, this is another one of those. I mean, it's the it's the bomb movie. You know, if, if what you read is true, I mean, it's the bomb movie. Uh, it's hard to it's hard to imagine this film. It's hard to imagine a world without this film. It has so much cultural resonance. It really, truly does. And to pick up on that cultural resonance theme, I knew so many of these songs, never having seen the film word by word. And yeah, I mean, I. Yeah, there are there are some really good songs in here that are, you know, the sort of pinnacle of I mean, I, I really do think uh, that this is, if not Roger and Hammerstein's best, this is one of their best. And like I said before, I think they have a lot of stinkers. So and I also enjoy this movie. I enjoyed watching it. Yes, it's fun. It truly is fun. There are so many moments I laughed at, and that's pretty rare if in any film, especially a musical. Yeah. Yeah. So, final question, Ethan. Does this film hold up? I think, uh, as with many films that we've looked at on this list, if you don't think too, too hard about it, it, it does. It's it's still a, a lot of fun to watch, It's except for the first, like, 20 minutes. Um, you know, it's engrossing. The, the story is interesting. It makes you feel good. I think that you, you know, this is the kind of movie, this is why it gets such wide play on TV. I bet you if you threw it up in the theaters again, people would flock to it. You know, it's a, a perfect kids movie. It's got just enough drama. It, you know, it hits all the right beats. Yeah, I think it does. Yeah, I would agree with that. Though I am experiencing some ambivalence with the Nazis again, not the party itself, but their <laughs> depiction in this film because... Like I mentioned in Cabaret, Cabaret does this unspoken thing where it says, look, when we all view spectacle and withdraw from the world, bad people take over. Yeah. But in this film, we said we took on the bad people and we got away from them. We foiled them. But they run to Switzerland, which we know is not a part of World War II, at least the direct conflict aspect of it. And the Nazis almost take over the world, right? So there's True. not necessarily a good ending here, even though we view it as such. So True. this is kind of like placating as opposed to, it's also back padding because it's 1965, even though right. the world of the film is prior to the invasion of Poland. It's sort of patting ourselves on the back saying we beat the Nazis. 
Whereas something like Cabaret is saying, look, apply this to other parts of your life, this could happen again. So as a piece of moral instruction, this movie fails. Yeah, I think you have a, a really good point there. Um, and I guess I will say also as, a, as at least my, I guess my final word on it is that I think that if you were to to stage this or film this today, I think that a lot of the um, the stuff with the women characters, the female characters, particular particularly Liesel and um, and Julie Andrews, but not uh, what's Julie, Maria to an to perhaps not quite to the same extent because she's already a pretty uh, sort of subversive female character. Um, but I think a lot of the stuff with Liesel, you can would be staged slightly differently the whole 16 going on 17 song i think would be a, a lot more her sort of second verse singing back to him i think would be a lot less coy and a lot more um not demeaning to him defiant but, but much more defiant um as though you know i, I think there would be much more of a, a hat tip and a nod to the fact that like the the female characters are the ones running the show here for the most part um Absolutely. even even the baroness who it finally like when she realizes what's going to happen with the uh captain um makes him stop and then she dumps him uh to you know and i think that again the a lot of those little moments with the women would be played uh a, just a bit differently and, a, and again a little more clearly to to sort of show that the captain is kind of a bumbling, you know, he doesn't, he's not really sure what he's doing. Uh, he needs these women to come and fix his life, you know, and obviously, you know, Rolf has his shit all mixed up. Um, and so I think he would be a little more of a villainous character today, particularly in, in, in the 1617 song, uh, with Liesel being a little bit more of a headstrong, you know, yeah, so I think that the depictions of women would change a little bit, or would need to change a little bit for you know if we were to do this today. Uh, but aside from that, and aside from maybe the sort of the stuff about the Nazis you were talking about, I I mean I do think that it would hold up pretty well. I think to add on to your point, they could have painted the Baroness as a much harder villainess at the end. Yeah. But she could have held the captain to his engagement or made his life difficult. But she says, look, no, I'm going to dump you in this nice way that he recognizes is her doing him a real solid there. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I think that was good. But you're right. I think the leasehold part could have been more defiant and Maria could go even further with her lack of discipline, as the captain would call it. Right. But Ethan, I think that's going to do it for us in this episode. Yes. We'll be back, however, next time on the AFI Top 100 with Dr. Strangelove. Dr. Strangelove. Incidentally, the only Kubrick film that I really wanted that did not come in my Christmas gift of a collection of Kubrick's films. I'm sorry to hear that, but you'll get to watch it anyway. But before that... We're going to be on Patreon for our super secret bonus content episodes for our yes. patrons of the arts. If you'd like to be yes. a patron of the art, donate $5 a month to us. That gets you two extra bonus episodes a month. And it allows you to have access to our humongous backlog of all these other um, 
films, both new and old, that we've amassed over the last few years. So that $5 gives you a month access with two new episodes and all of our old stuff. Um, so please start this year off uh, supporting people you really dig. We would love your support. Um, and we want to thank everybody who has supported us throughout the last couple of years. Yes. And to further add spice to that pot, the film for this next week will be one of my favorites, The Dark Crystal. The Dark Crystal. But until next time, I've been Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And there will be spoilers. The hills are alive with the sound of spoilers. There Will Be Spoilers 100 Films 100 Podcasts was created and hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Bazell produces our episodes each week. Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder, who you can find all over the internet. Our artwork was created by Becca Knight, who can be found on Twitter at Becca the Knight, and that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast, and you can hear more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com slash spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next week for more spoilers.